0: I guess twice monthly coronavirus update. Today is March 21st, 2020. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I got the date right this time. And we are going to be talking about the things that have changed since our last update. So, Dr. Dean, what do you think the biggest things are that have changed?
1: Well, I think we're really having a robust discussion about reopening and ending the lockdown, and we've really flattened the curve. So we're starting to get some scientific modeling that's showing exactly um, how many lives have been saved because of the drastic social distancing that we've been doing. And for example, here in California, where we instituted this early, um, it's estimated that more than 40,000 lives were saved in Los Angeles alone because of the social distancing.
0: Wow, that's a really amazing number just to hear out loud. And I, you know heard at the beginning that if you feel like it was a big waste of time, you probably did it correctly, right? That's, or like that's
1: a great way of looking at it. <laughs> right.
0: Um so a lot of people are saying like, well, why did we even do this? It didn't seem like it was big in our community, but that was the whole point, correct?
1: The whole point was to be safe so it wouldn't be big in your community. So if you didn't have a lot of transmission, that means you did a great job and you did save lives, you did save hospitalizations.
0: Yeah, and as we're starting to reopen, a lot of parents, friends, family members are asking about safe ways to start to socialize and how they can still kind of take a harm reduction approach to getting back out there. Um, So are there recommendations that you've been giving to families about how to safely start to socialize again?
1: Mm -hmm. Well, first of all, you want to follow your local public health guidance because it's different everywhere. We have different rates of transmission and then different communities also have different um, I, I would say different values in terms of how um, aggressively to open up or how much they still need to protect the community. And remember, even if there's not widespread transmission within a community, if it's a community that may have like a lot of nursing homes or skilled nursing facilities, you know, if you have any transmission in the community and it gets into one of those areas, that's where we're seeing these very high rates of death, where 25% of the residents are dying, things like that.
0: Yeah, so we have to really make sure that we protect those communities, especially. Um, and so you think about maybe workers that work at nursing homes, you know, going out to see friends or other things. And it it still feels scary in some ways. And I think for a lot of people, you know, they're nervous to get back to seeing their parents or people that are in the high-risk age group. And do you think that's like that's fair? Do, are we, should we still be avoiding people that are maybe more high risk?
1: I think people need to be very thoughtful about this and be clear what their values are. So remember that even in the most affected communities worldwide, only about 20% of people have been infected. So we still know that this Virus may go through a community like wildfire. The vast majority of us are still vulnerable to infection. So depending on your sort of risk calculations and how tired you are of sheltering in place and, and then, you know, make sure you have a robust discussion with your parents, with the grandparents. If they are just really want to see the grandkids, you know, maybe now's the time. And if, on the other hand, people are still really want to be careful, I think we need to respect that too.
0: Yeah. And how about still being careful and wearing masks when you're in grocery stores and, you know, disinfecting and the hand washing? Those are all should definitely be kept in practice, correct?
1: Yes, I think we should definitely continue to do that. And remember, wearing a mask primarily protects people around you. It doesn't protect you from getting infected. So it's a, it's part of being a good community member, a good citizen. And so participating in good citizenship by wearing a mask when you're out and about, when potentially you won't be able to social distance at, a, at an adequate distance of six feet.
0: Gotcha. So, A lot of people are talking about the second wave that might be coming. I'm wondering if there are things in place within our state or federally that can predict that this might be coming and that we should lock down. Do you know anything about this?
1: Well, I don't know that you can really predict. That's the thing. If we could predict, then we would know exactly what to do right now. And so I think, to me, the most important thing to do is when you start Um, getting rid of these restrictions and we have increased mobility is we need to do things very slow and incrementally because it's going to take about a month to find out what the effects of um, easing up of the lockdown are going to be because the incubation period can be up to two weeks so we're going to need to wait for one or two cycles of the incubation period before we start detecting an increased number of cases and if you make too many Sorry, if you just I just want to say if you make too many changes at once, you know, then then it could totally get out of control. So you want to do it very slowly so that if you make too many changes, if you made the wrong decisions, then you can like start making you know new decisions to make sure we're all safe.
0: Are there any places that are giving us an idea, like in my mind, looking to Italy or to China um, that have started to roll back restrictions and are they seeing a second wave?
1: Yeah, so China was a really good example to bring up because in Wuhan, they did really the most severe lockdown that we've seen worldwide. And then they did open up and they did see a handful of cases, but it generally seems to be safe. Another model to look at is Denmark, where a few weeks ago, kids started attending school again under new guidance, but they're attending school. And so far, they have not seen a rebound. So I think that's very promising
0: Yeah, so there's a lot of different places because this has been such a worldwide pandemic that we can potentially learn from and kind of help to guide
1: our decisions. Right, exactly.
0: I wanted to ask you a little bit about contact tracing because that's something that they talk about, but it doesn't... So my understanding of it, and please correct me if I'm wrong, is that once one person has been identified as testing positive, there would be a mechanism in place to identify people around them, say if it was like their cell phone or something that could ping anyone that they have come in contact with um, within the last two weeks and would notify the person like, hey, you've had exposure to someone who tested positive for COVID. It may be worthwhile getting tested. Is that sort of like what a kind of high-tech contact tracing would look like?
1: That's the high-tech way. And then there's the lower-tech way, which is to actually hire people to contact those who were in contact with somebody who was potentially infectious and make sure that they're educated about self-quarantine during the potential incubation period.
0: But the low-tech way of someone doesn't seem feasible (laughs) on this scale. Am I right?
1: I have a lot of questions about that, too. And then the other issues are, you know, is it really feasible, you know, because of um, privacy concerns and, and other issues?
0: Right. So to your knowledge, they're not using our phones to kind of like develop something like that. Well, at I think this there's point. two
1: tracks being um, followed. And one is the sort of the individual track where you would opt in via via Right,
0: right. I mean, that's, yeah. that seems like the most likely thing is that you could opt right, in if you right. wanted to. So
1: that, that is potential.
0: So you think that may happen? Obviously, I'm just kind of brainstorming here. It it may
1: happen, but then, you know, we all do have privacy concerns also, and so we have to factor that in. So a lot of people won't opt in because of those privacy concerns.
0: That makes sense. Last week, we talked a little bit about the new inflammatory syndrome in kids that's been described um, as a Kawasaki syndrome-like. Although, in reading a little bit more about it since our last recording— it seems like people think that it is sort of its own entity. Is there any new research coming out about this? I think they're calling it pediatric multisystem inflammatory syndrome.
1: Right. There's a lot of new research coming out. As you can imagine, there's new pre-publications coming out every day. It looks as if it's a post-infectious phenomenon. It looks like most of the children who've been described have been infected sometime in the past month before they present. And it appears a little bit more similar to something um, people may have heard of, toxic shock syndrome, which is usually from a staph or a strep infection. It appears to be closer to that than it does the Kawasaki syndrome, although there's a lot of overlap. There have been some cases in California.
0: Oh, there have been? Yeah. The good news is that It's easy to spot. So your kid is not going to be sitting at home, you know, just with a very mild fever and this syndrome. You'll know they'll be more sick. And so reach out to your pediatrician if you're concerned about any of your kid's um, symptoms. And some of those for this would be high fever. There seems to be a lot of GI. um, So like stomach, vomiting, diarrhea, abdominal pain, rashes have been associated, um, muscle aches. Anything else, Dr. Dean?
1: Yeah, these kids are sick, so I'm confident that parents will recognize this and realize that their kids need medical attention.
0: Yeah, definitely. So let's talk about some of the new studies that have come out over the last couple weeks since we talked last. Um one of the biggest ones, and I know one that um, you had been interested in is sort of looking at establishing immunity. So a big question for a lot of people has been, okay, if I get this once, am I gonna still be at risk? Am I gonna have antibodies? Am I gonna be at risk of getting it again? So just this month in science, there was a article published that looked at monkeys, so not. Not humans, but infection with the virus and seeing if they could get reinfected.
1: Yeah, it was an interesting study. So it's an animal model, and it's close to humans because it's monkeys. And they infected them, and they did have symptoms once they were infected, and they did have viral replication. Um, And then they waited a period of time, and they reinfected them with a really large dose of the virus, And um, most of them were not symptomatic or only mildly symptomatic the second time around. Um, They did um, recover a lot of virus from the nasal washings, which is how they infected them. And so some people believe you can interpret this as saying, oh, if they get exposed a second time, they still might transmit to others. But it also could be that they used such a big dose to infect them that it might have been the infecting dose and not the viral replication that they were um, detecting. But it seems to point towards immunity resulting after initial infection, which is really what we would expect because we've seen this with other routine coronaviruses that when people get infected, they are immune for at least a year or two before immunity wanes.
0: Right. I think that is promising and hopefully we'll have more studies and as time goes on studies in humans that can kind of help bolster those results. Another thing that is exciting is the vaccine trials that have shown some promising results. So Moderna was one of the big pharmaceutical companies that have had success in early testing. They tested 8 volunteers with the vaccine and showed that it was safe, that it had a good immune response. So what does that mean? So the 8 people, I mean obviously that's not enough, but what what's that's the next right. <laughs> what's the next right. phase?
1: Yeah, so they did test really a handful of people. Some of them got one dose, some of them got two doses, and there were different doses that they received. And the really promising part is not only did they have a good immune response, so they tested the antibodies, but they also tested for neutralizing antibodies. And so these are the antibodies that actually neutralize the virus that would suggest that if people were exposed that the immune response would be sufficient so that they wouldn't get infected. So that's really promising. But again, it's such a small number. And so we really need much, much bigger numbers of um, study subjects. We know that with other routinely used vaccines before they're even brought initially to market um, and before they're they're used and recommended, you know, these studies involve tens of thousands uh, of patients. So, yeah, the, so they're able to go on to the next step.
0: And... Until they get to that point, is it like 8 to 100 to 500 to uh, just so we know the like, how long it might be?
1: <laughs> yeah, so the next step usually involves a few hundred. And I think with the Moderna trial, which is in partnership with the NIH, I think the next step is four or 500 study subjects. And then if that looks promising, then the next step should be thousands of study subjects.
0: Very interesting and exciting because it, it feels like there might be something on the horizon. The other big thing that's been on the news that we've talked about over the course of the last few months is surfaces. Mm-hmm. How long does it last? Does it last? Am I going to get it when I touch the handle at the gas station?
1: Right. And when we go to the grocery store, you know, they're they're all spending a lot of time disinfecting the grocery carts. And, you know, I always wonder, like... What what value is there in that? Do we really get a lot of bang for that buck? Um, so, yeah, the CDC did change their website this week and really this is primarily transmitted via the respiratory route and what they've done is subtly change the messaging to sort of downplay the surface contact transmission. So it can be transmitted by touching things and then touching your face. So we still do recommend hand washing but really the the big emphasis should be on the social distancing and then the masks if you're not able to social distance um, effectively because it it is primarily a respiratory pathogen.
0: Which we've sort of known from the beginning, but again, it's just like more time, more studies, and and learning more about this specific virus that no one has ever experienced before.
1: Right. And then when you just think about all the efforts that we're all putting into our daily lives so that we and our families aren't getting infected, you know, really do the social distancing. That That's the one that I would primarily emphasize. And all the other stuff of like wiping down the mail or grocery items before you put them in the pantry... You know, I, I just wouldn't spend a lot of energy on on that compared to the social distancing and then being a good mask wearer.
0: Yeah, definitely. Well, the weather here is beautiful. I hope that you guys are getting outside, spending time with your families and taking care of yourself. We know that this is a really difficult time for people financially, emotionally. And so we really hope that everyone is staying safe As pediatricians, we again want you to bring your children in for their routine vaccinations to call us if you're nervous about anything or if your kid has a cold and bring them in to their well child checks. We would love to see them.
1: Mm -hmm. And going outside is a wonderful thing to do because the virus is transmitted much more efficiently indoors than outdoors. And one study from China suggested that more than 90% of the transmission takes place inside within a community and less than 10% of the transmission takes place um, when people are outdoors. So being outdoors is a great thing to do.
0: Wow, I love that study. That's my favorite study that's come out of COVID-19 so far. So, yes, take in the gorgeous weather this weekend. And always remember to consider kids throughout this whole process. So we will come back in two weeks for our next um, COVID-19 update.
1: That wraps up this episode of Kids Considered. Thank you for listening, and we hope you will join us for our next podcast.
0: Kids Considered is sponsored by UC Davis Children's Hospital.